Welcome to Straight Thinking. On today's special episode, we're taking a look back at one of our favorite discussions. Now tune in with philosopher Ken Samples, Joe Aguirre, and Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, why it's important to study and use philosophy. This is part two of uh, two on this topic. And Ken, maybe you can offer a recap of the first one and then tell us where we're headed today. Yeah, I've Joe. I've noticed that um, I've noticed through uh, social media and and various other ways that, and, and particularly as it relates to science faith issues, I've noticed over the last number of years that there have been kind of leading scientists who, uh, you know, they not only talk about science but they talk about philosophy, and the the problem is that. Uh, to quote uh, John Ellis, uh, they engage in kind of low-level philosophy. And I also had an encounter on social media with a professor of philosophy, and she made the comment that a lot of people that she talks with, and there are other academics, there are people in the social sciences and even in the humanities, and they say to her, what is it like to teach a topic where there are no answers? And uh, I thought, wow, um, I think the irony of all of this is the people who dismiss philosophy are not aware how powerful a particular philosophy has had in shaping them. Post Secular postmodernism says we're, we're left with subjectivism. There's no God's eye view. So in this program, I kind of want to look at those issues. Why do we value philosophy? And what do we do to kind of critique this particular philosophy, postmodernism, that, that's had so much influence? Wonderful. All right. Ready to go. Well, again, uh, in the previous program, we talked uh, about some of the quotations that have come from secular scientists, uh, Stephen Hawking, Lawrence Krauss, uh, uh, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, etc. Well, I want to emphasize again that I think that uh, there are some scientists out there who really do appreciate philosophy. And I, I want to give again this quote by Albert Einstein. Um, Einstein said, quote, a knowledge of the historic and philosophical background gives that kind of independence from prejudices of his generation from which most scientists are suffering. He says, the independence created by philosophical insight, in my opinion, the mark of distinction between a mere artisan or specialist and a real seeker of truth. You know, Einstein's an amazing person. Um, I often mention uh, near the year 2000, I was wondering who Time Magazine was going to give as the man of the century. And I, I was thinking in my mind, could it, could it be... Um, uh, could it be somebody who was prominent in the World War II era, Winston Churchill, or how about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who uh, navigated during the Great Depression and created kind of the, the, the modern, uh, you know, democratic party within the United States. And Time Magazine threw me a curve and selected Albert Einstein as the man of the century. And I thought, wow, I, wait a second here. I mean, I even thought, and this is a controversial view, but I thought, you know, if you really want to know who, who maybe had the biggest influence, you might have to look at somebody like an Adolf Hitler. I mean, he went from being homeless to within inches of controlling the whole world. Uh, but of course, the evil that was involved in Nazism, I think, would just repudiate that kind of, you know, kind of selection. But when they gave their reasons for picking Albert Einstein, I, I thought they were good ones. They said, you know, this is a man through his development of science that changed the way we view the universe. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's a pretty good resume as far as I'm concerned. And mm -hmm. what I appreciate about Einstein too is, I think he was even more thoughtful in that he realized that history and philosophy kind of give modern people a perspective on things. It, it shows them the value of science, but also the limitations of science. 
And here's a quote from a man I've come to appreciate very much. It's John Ellis, physicist, mathematician, cosmologist. He was asked the question by John Horgan. Uh, Horgan says, Krauss, uh, Lawrence Krauss, Stephen Hawking, Neil deGrasse Tyson have been bashing philosophy as a waste of time. Do, do you agree? And Ellis says, quote, if they really believe this, they should stop indulging in low-grade philosophy in their own writings. You cannot do physics or cosmology without an assumed philosophical basis. You can choose not to think about that basis. It will still be there as an unexamined foundation of what you do, the fact you are unwilling to examine the philosophical foundations of what you do does not mean those foundations are not there. It just means they're unexamined. So Dave, when, when critics say, well, science just works, my comment I think would be similar to Einstein and to Ellis, that there are foundations for science. You can choose to ignore them if you will, but there are these assumptions uh, that we've talked about before, kind of these starting points, uh, if you will. Now, having said that, I, I think there's a great irony in this, this idea that philosophy bakes no bread. Uh, when secular scientists say, you know, philosophy's dead, you should ignore it, or when people in the social sciences, even the humanities say, philosophy doesn't have any answers. The idea that philosophy is dead and that philosophy has no answers is a philosophy of life. So you, you've essentially said, um, I've accepted this particular philosophy that denies all of this. And, you know, uh, there, are, there are kooky philosophies out there. Uh, and and I don't I don't think we want to get into a situation where we're we're competing for turf. Um, I think the really good scientists in the world I think they care about things like reality and truth, and I think there are some good philosophers out there who do too. Um, in theology, I'm taught to prize truth. I'm taught that that knowledge is is a good gift of God. Uh, and so I think that philosophy and theology and science can work together very well. Uh, but I, I, I think, unfortunately, people have kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. You know... Um, Go ahead, Dave. Well, just it seems like the problem is that the, <laughs> the story I get is that philosophy doesn't come up with, as, as you had quoted before, with any answers. Uh, the fact is that you can read philosophers from the past, and then you read other philosophers who disagree with them, and then you read other philosophers who disagree with that. And so it never seems to kind of come to any, at least in the field of philosophy, come to any sort of final worldview or point of view that you know, a majority of people agree is the consensus viewpoint. In science, you know, pretty much everybody agrees that general relativity coming from Einstein's work is the right description, best we can do, of the way the universe works, in, at least in the large scale. They agree that quantum mechanics is a good description of the way the, wor the world works at the microscopic level. But you don't find that kind of agreement within the field of philosophy. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think that's a fair-minded question. Um, well, I, I think I'd wanna say this, Dave, that I think when you look at these eras that we've been talking about, if you look at kind of pre-modernism, modernism and post-modernism, I think collectively in the ancient world, there was a, a large agreement. I mean, even pagans like Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics, the, the Greek and Roman thinkers, you know, they thought there were things like truth, goodness, and beauty. And they thought that they were worth anchoring your life in, following those kinds of things. So I think Judaism and Christianity and much of the, the Greek and Roman world 
had kind of deep common ideas that there, there is truth out there. Uh, it can be apprehended and it's critical that, that it be applied to life. Now, of course, I think um, with the development of uh, philosophy, there have been more skeptical perspectives that are given. Uh, you know, some people would say science is one of the enterprises that has raised kind of a secular challenge uh, to kind of a religious worldview. But, you know, you could look at it this way. I think in the history of human beings, most people have believed in God. In fact, I think for much of Western civilization, I think lots of people thought believing in God was just common sense. Uh, and, and I think, Dave, they took truth, goodness, and beauty as being anchors. These were real. These were true. Now, having said that, I agree with some of that criticism. Uh, philosophy often seems like, uh, you know, there, there's no kind of definitive point of view. One philosopher critiques another philosopher, which critiques another philosopher. But I, I would say, I think sometimes that's exaggerated. I mean, even David Hume, even Immanuel Kant, uh, who are two very skeptical thinkers, they would have a lot in common and they'd share a lot of common ground with theistic thinkers. Now, let, let, me, let me bring us to the, to the modern world. I mean, we're in this pandemic um, and People say, follow the science. Well, am I following the science or am I following the scientists? Hmm. Um, that is, there are times where science seems kind of messy. I, I agree that there are these big theories and they carry a, a great deal of explanation, but uh, what exactly does Darwinian evolution say? And you know, I remember one leading scientist said to me one day and to Hugh and to Fuzz, he said that uh, evolution was as sure as gravity. And I, uh, I said, <laughs> what? Um, but, you know, to, to non-scientists, Dave, sometimes science seems like it's all over the map. I know it's not. I know there are these categories and I know there is a, a lot of work that's gone into them, but how you interpret the data of science seems to be according to your particular worldview. Hmm. And one more point, um, I agree with you. Science, science has a way of, of giving you confidence, of giving you a, a perspective that there are certain things we can know. But remember its limitations. It can't tell you about metaphysics. It, it can't tell you about things like math. It can't tell you things like beauty or the meaning of life. So I agree, science is a remarkable mechanism with, with a good record of accomplishment. But I think it, it, is, it shows a lack of philosophical sophistication not to recognize the limits of science. I think that would be my answer. The, um, the the skeptic, you know, would say, as we've mentioned before, science works. That I can do science and I can get answers, but when I do philosophy, philosophy more entails kind of ultimately how you live your life. And philosophers have not been known to be the most moral people necessarily their lives are screwed up. <laughs> and so they, you, you could argue that their philosophy ultimately doesn't work because it hasn't produced in them a life that anyone admires. The only person that really fits the category of someone you admire who has a certain philosophy is Jesus Christ. But that entails ideas and viewpoints that the natural man doesn't want to subscribe to. So you're in this quandary that the best philosophy is Christianity, but the natural man rejects that because it entails submitting his life to a 
worldview or to a point of view or to a, a, a course of action that he doesn't want. And I think if you, I, I think to kind of relate your comments there to this big picture, remember the one way of looking at a worldview is, you know, it's a cluster of beliefs about your most important issues, God, human beings, truth, goodness, beauty, etc. Another way of thinking about a worldview is kind of a sequence of events, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Um, you know, a Christian philosophy of life would say, well, God is the creator of all things and all people are made in his image. And therefore, they're going to get some things right. They have general revelation. You know, I doubt whether Plato or Aristotle ever saw a Bible. And yet they get some things right. I, I doubt the, you know, Caesar Augustus ever saw a Bible. Maybe, maybe he did. Maybe he saw the Old Testament. Who knows? I'm not sure. But they get certain things right. But then the problem, Dave, is the fall. Whatever, whatever philosophy of life you're going to come up with, it's going to bump into what I would call original sin. It's going to bump up into the, the fall. And, and so even the Greek thinkers uh, that I admire, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, um, you know, they didn't really have much view of sin. They might even defend particular lifestyles, maybe homosexual lifestyles. Um, the same is true for, you know, the Greek philosophers. And yet, Dave, even some of the scientists, um, they all don't always live, you know, these impeccable lives. Um, uh, you know, even Albert Einstein, he was, he was, uh, he became a celebrity and, and things that came along with that weren't always uh, the best things in the world. But I, I think your point is a powerful one, and I'm not I'm not advocating that. Um, I, I would rather think about philosophy as a tool, R rather than rather than approaching it from the standpoint that philosophy is this this great you know uh, mechanism. I would rather see it as a tool. And as a Christian philosopher, I like a more humble view of philosophy. It's a handmaid. Right. And I think in that way, your discipline also could be a handmaid. And I think some of the some of the best scientists who happen to be Christian, they often they often say that uh, it was my faith that that gave a context for my science. It was my faith that kind of explained the things that that science couldn't. Well, let's talk a bit more here. Uh, about this idea, and, and, and again, I'm zeroing back on this idea that, that when people say philosophy is dead or when people say philosophy has no answers, I think they're actually reflecting a particular philosophy. So maybe philosophy is more influential than they first thought. Hmm. And, that, and what I'm talking about here is what I would call a very skeptical postmodern philosophy. And again, in our previous show, we've talked a little bit uh, about it. We've talked about their suspicion and rejection of your meta narratives, your big picture worldviews. There's no absolute or objective God's eye view of truth. Wow. You know, I was raised to believe there are truths. And I was taught that when your idea of truth matched with reality, you had the truth. Um, but there's a rejection of that. Language is arbitrary and incapable of communicating clear, objective, and ultimate meaning. Well, from a biblical point of view, I think those words were inspired by God, that they do commit truth. And you might have to work at interpreting them, and you may have to work at properly applying them, but I believe there's truth in that book. And then textual deconstruction, again, that language is arbitrary. Now, what I'd like to spend a few minutes doing is, is to talk about some of these ideas. And the first place I want to go to is, ironically, in my opinion, I think that postmodernism is new and not new. 
I think that postmodernism, and, and again, thinking of it in terms of these broad ideas of being skeptical of knowledge, being skeptical of truth, being skeptical of ethics, um, we've seen all this before. Uh, the first philosophy texts I ever read were the writings of Plato that are called Socratic Dialogues. And uh, Plato, if he were living in the 20th century, he would have worked for Disney. He likes to communicate philosophy not in tomes uh, that go on and on and on and on. Plato thinks philosophy is meant to be seen within a dialogue, one person talking with another. And I think he was very intuitive. I mean, Plato, by the way, said that that philosophy is like a, a dialogue uh, in the person, in the context of their soul. F philosophy is asking these deep questions. Well, um, the interesting thing is that, so that Plato uses Socrates as his mouthpiece. And so if you read, uh, you know, some of the early Platonic uh, Socratic dialogues, um, you, you get these images of, of Socrates talking to the philosophers of the ancient world. And there was a particular group of thinkers. I don't know that I would call them philosophers per se. They kind of strike me as a blend of what we might today call philosophers, lawyers, politicians. And I kind of mean that negatively. <laughs> um, these were called the sophists. Now, now what's sophistry? If, if I accuse Dave and Joe of, of sophistry, what am I saying there? Well, uh, the sophists in, in Socrates' day, it was said they were so skilled with the use of rhetoric and language that they could make the worse argument appear the better. Hmm. Now, if, if, if Plato would work for Disney, I think the sophists, they would work for, they'd be in, living in DC and, and writing for the media. They would be writing stories about, you know, the advertising industry. You know, this is the best shaver you ever got in the world, you know. So the sophists were not known for their deep reflection on issues. In, in large measure, they thought life was about being pragmatic. They thought life was about what works. It's about political power. It's about convincing people of your way of thinking. And those, those were the sophists. In, in many days, I think the sophists were the postmoderns of the pre-modern world. And let's talk a little bit about uh, some of their ideas um, with regard to truth. Now, again, Let's talk a little bit about the way truth has typically been thought of. Uh, most philosophers in the Western world have thought about what they call the correspondence view of truth. So if, for example, if, if I know that, that uh, you know, water, H2O, if, if I understand the, 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 the nature of water, you know, uh, H2, two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom. If, if, if I know that and I say, well, this is what water is, and if that is indeed what water is, then I know the truth about water. Or if I know that two plus two equals four, and two plus two does equal four, then I know the truth. See how the idea here is, if your ideas correspond, if they match, if they equal reality, then you've got the truth. Well, the sophists didn't believe that. The sophists believed, for example, that truth was subjective. They thought it was relative. It was changing. They thought that ultimately you couldn't know ultimate truth. That was, that was out of hand. Uh, Access was denied to knowing ultimate truth. They also thought that a lot of truth was invented. And they thought that what was useful and workable was more important than kind of these obscure philosophical notions about truth. You, you should be thinking about how you can use your ideas, 
how workable are they? And they thought that truth was less important than power. Does that sound, does that ring a bell to today? So the irony, I think, of uh, postmodernism is that it's new, but it's not new. And on the other side of the coin, you have Socrates, but then you have very much Christian theists who would say, no, truth's not subjective, it's objective. It's, there is an objective basis of reality. It's called God. And God has made us in his image, and he's given us the ability to grasp truth. Uh, Socrates and the Christian thinkers would say that the truth is not relative, it's absolute. It's not unknowable, it's knowable. It doesn't mean you can know everything about it, but you can have a basic knowledge of truth. It's not invented, it's discovered. You know what? I think in many ways, a definitive question about what worldview you hold could be answered by the question, it was truth invented or was it discovered? What about math? Invented or discovered? How about morality? Invented or discovered? I think if you say that truth, goodness, and beauty were not invented but discovered, you're probably a theist. And if you say that truth, goodness, and beauty were invented, you're probably a skeptic. You're probably a secularist. I, in fact, I think that I'm going to write an article about that. <laughs> what, what do you say about truth, goodness, and beauty? Was it invented or discovered? And I think the, the secularists are going to say truth, goodness, and beauty, invented. <laughs> Throw mathematics in there, whatever you want. And if you believe that truth, goodness, and beauty is discovered, you're a theist. Now, there may be people that might want to come along and say, in fact, I think there are people who try to make a case that, no, you don't have to be a theist to believe there is some objective basis. But I, but I think, by and large, it's very difficult to be an atheist and to think that truth, goodness, and beauty somehow has an objective basis all its own. Uh, Socrates and the Christians say, re truth corresponds to reality. The sophists and the postmodernists say, no, uh, truth is really whether it works. Truth is about workability. It's about power. And then finally, the, the, I think Socrates and the Christian theists would say that truth should be the proper object of your life's pursuit. I agree with that, by the way. I, by the way, I also believe that Jesus Christ is the truth, and therefore I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, I believe that Christianity is true, and I believe that embracing that faith will bring me closer to truth. But the, the sophists and the postmodernists, particularly the secularists, you can be a religious postmodernist, but I think the secular ones would say that truth is less important than power. That's a remarkable statement there. Yeah, you, you, you think about, um, you know, you think about issues. And, and I think in many ways, the, the postmodernist critique is people who have these exalted worldviews, they don't have truth. They're using them to garner influence. But that's, that's very different. I mean, I'd encourage people to kind of look at those, put them in parallel columns. I've done this, by the way, uh, both in my book, A World of Difference, and in Christianity Cross-Examined. I have uh, tables looking at both, but think about that. Is truth objective or subjective? Is it absolute or relative? Can you know it, or is it unknowable? Is it discoverable, or is it invented? Does it correspond to reality or does it equal usefulness and work? Is it the proper object of your pursuit in life or is it less important than power? I think in many ways, how you answer those questions will identify who and what you are and what worldview you embrace. Yeah. You know, the, the person who is the naturalist, he'll claim that he has truth and then attempt to use that truth to gain power or control over people or, or actions. 
but uh, the, the, you know, the real test is, is it true or is it just a claim that they make to gain power? Now, now, in light of that very provocative question you have there, your comment, Dave, I, I, I now want to give you two quotations, and I, I want to go out on a limb here a little bit, but I, but I still think it's a pretty solid limb. Uh, I want to say that um, postmodernism is just the final destination of modernism. I, I think the crash and burn of postmodernism really started with modernism, which is again, very skeptical and very secular. Let, let me- oh, I'm putting the ground of truth being in man. Exactly. Yeah. It, when, when you move away from pre-modernism, truth, goodness, and beauty, value, and meaning is in God. When you get to modernism, all that stuff is in man. It's in nature. It's in science. Well, I don't think you have to go too far and then you get to postmodernism, particularly secular postmodernism, which would say, well, we really don't know where those things are. So we, it's, it's about workability. It's, a, it's about pragmatism. Here's a quotation from two very interesting, I would call them exegetical theologians. It's uh, D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo. This is in their really good book, by the way, uh, a book I'd highly recommend to our listeners. It's entitled An Introduction to the New Testament. I've learned a lot from this book. It is, it is a textbook. It's uh, hardcover. It's, uh, you know, hundreds of pages, but it's really good. An Introduction to the New Testament. This is what Carson and Moose say. They say, quote, postmoderns are convinced that because we human beings are so small, our knowledge is microscopic, and our social frame of reference so limited, our putative knowledge can at best be never more than provisional. In the strongest forms of postmodernism, all human knowledge is in some sense a social construct and therefore provides no clear or objective knowledge of the objective world at all. I, I think that is a remarkable summary of where we, where we get postmodernism. Um, that it, it really gives us very real knowledge about the world. It, it can't give us a lot of real ideas about truth. Now, now here's another one, and this is from Doug Grutheis, Douglas Grutheis. He's a philosopher. He teaches at Denver Seminary. Um, has, a, has a very robust book on apologetics, uh, very lengthy, a hardcover text. Uh, you can just look up Grutheis, spelled G-R-O-O-T-H-U-I-S, Doug Grutheis. Uh, he, this is from his other book, Truth Decay. Notice what he says. Quote, postmodernism is so often presented as a radical departure from modernism that it is easy to miss the insight that postmodernism is, in many ways, modernism gone to seed, carried to its logical conclusion, an inevitable demise. I agree with that. I think a lot of times because we categorize them pre-modern, modern, postmodern, and we often point out where these, these perspectives or eras of ideas distinguish with one another, I think the reality is that it's a breakdown. I think modernism was a breaking down of the truths of pre-modernism. And I think postmodernism, rather than being merely a re reaction to modernism, is a decay of modernism. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I'm, I'm going to make a challenging statement here, and some of my skeptical friends will disagree with me. I find it really hard to understand how you can have an objective basis for truth, goodness, and beauty if there's no God. Mm -hmm. I in my view, atheism has a real hard time with reason, morality, and meaning. Where do they go? Where do you get them? Where, where is the foundation floor upon which they rest? I think if I were an atheist, I would be tempted to think truth, goodness, and beauty are invented, not discovered. 
Now, again, not everybody's going to agree with me, and I'm very happy that many modern atheists think object morality is objective. I just don't think secularism has a place to ground it. Uh, so I think that those are powerful points. Now, I, I also want to spend a little time kind of offering a bit of a critique, but I want to, I want to pause because I want, Dave and Joe, I want you to ask a question or two. If you, if you no, I, I have a question. Uh, we often run into two very brief statements that seem to reflect the modern zeitgeist. There's that word. <laughs> uh, one of them is whatever floats your boat and another one uh, is live and let live. We hear these these things. Would those be reflective of a postmodern mindset? And if so, do you have any recommendations to how to talk to somebody who, you know, that's where they that's where they hang? Yeah, I I think you know I mean these are very popular kind of expressions. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, you only live once. Yeah. Uh, or you know, I remember I remember. Uh, John Lennon's song, whatever gets you through the night. Hmm. I, I think that these are these popular expressions of, you know, um, I, I mean, as a philosopher, I think to myself, well, whatever gets you through the night, uh, maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's sex, maybe it's prayer, maybe it's meditation, but whatever your, whatever your thing is, and uh, whatever floats your boat, right? Whatever, whatever works for you. Um, I think that shows how. I think that shows how skeptical thinking that started largely in philosophical centers has now filtered out to the culture. And I used to think. Even a couple of years ago, I would say even before the pandemic, as that's just a couple of years, I think before the pandemic, I really wondered how how influential really is postmodernism. I I mean I know there are gray-haired old philosophers in the Ivy League who believe it, but you know is it is it really? How many Americans really believe it? After the pandemic after the social unrest, after what we've experienced, I think it's here. I think it's here to stay. I think woke ideas. Now, now again, you may have very real, real legitimate criticisms um, about the way minority people in our country are treated. And, and again, I would simply focus the comment by saying there have been a lot of Christian thinkers who have been at the forefront of saying that people have dignity and value regardless of their skin color, regardless of their sex. Um, there, there's a whole Christian tradition that says all people are made in the image of God. Uh, when I was growing up, I used to listen to Martin Luther King. He's known for a comment, you know, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. So I think, however, when it comes to identity politics and woke philosophy, I think they may not be aware how much of postmodernism they have drank. Mm. I, th I think that oftentimes uh, even Christians take in alternative philosophy without even knowing it. And, and they may, again, they may have very good intentions. They, they may mm -hmm. think, I want my faith to be very respectful of the sexes. I want my faith to be very respectful of uh, the ethnicity of people. And I do too. I go back to what Paul said, no difference between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, all are one in Christ. But I think uh, particular organizations who advocate these views, they might be more in the line of Marxism than they are in line with historic Christianity. So mm. the Bible is very clear. We need to be very discerning about these ideas. One of the, uh, the, the question that, of course, arises in my mind is, what is the ground of, a, of an appeal to people nowadays? 
for belief in Christianity. I mean, here, reasons to believe is trying to use science as, a, as an appeal, as a, as a way to get people's attention uh, to then share Christ and the gospel. But if postmodernism is the way people think, how do you appeal to people? They don't, they're skeptical of anything that you say. That's your truth. That's yeah. not my truth. You know, it's all relative. Yeah, I, I'm relating both of your questions. You know, Joe is asking, hey, whatever floats your boat, you know, you only, you know, you only live once. Your question, um, hey, uh, how, you know, reasons to believe, where do you ground reasons? How, what do you mean by believe? Believe in what? And of course, I have uh, here at RTB, I have often said that I think that the very powerful apologetic, the science faith apologetic that Hugh championed, you know, in starting in 1986, I think we have to take into account worldview issues. I think we have to take into account culture. Um, because for the exactly the reason that you have suggested, Dave, that, okay, why should I take science seriously? Or why should I think faith and reason can be compatible? And I think the answer to both of your questions is largely, I think, to give a Christian answer, you have to say, well, you know, um, my worldview actually comes at it quite differently. Uh, from a Christian worldview, you know, we think truth is discoverable. We think morality is something that's grounded in God, and we've been made in his image. I, I guess what I'm saying is, I think more important now than ever before is that Christians know their Bible, and that they have a basic understanding of theology, and that at various points we have to challenge that. Hey, I like science. I think science is valuable. I, I don't want to deny it, but it's not the be-all and end-all of life. And, you know, when it comes to relativistic morality, well, uh, you might think that having sex with multiple people anytime you want will make you happy. But in reality, if you get married and you're faithful to your spouse, you're likely to have much more fulfillment in life. Mm. And that there, there are messages that come from our culture that tell us, you know, if you had more money, if you had more pleasure, if you, if you had more independence, you would be fulfilled. I, th I think there's good indications, even from the social sciences, that that's not true. Um, that God created us and living according to his plan can lead us to great fulfillment in life. Hmm. Now, let me uh, let me just make one sort right. of final comment. I, I, you know, as I reflect on Paul's experience at Athens, later at Corinth, and his uh, statement in the beginning of the second chapter of First Corinthians, where he says that it was his goal that his preaching would not be based on the wisdom of men, but on the power and demonstration of the spirit. And you wonder whether this is his answer to this question, that there has to be a spiritual impact, a power, an authority coming from God that is going to make this a message that gets people's attention rather than something that necessarily appeals to their mind or to their present understanding of things. I don't know what you think of that, but. Well, I, I, I think that that, I think there's legitimacy to that, that interpretation, Dave. I, you know, the apostle Paul went into Athens. He went, he talked to the philosophers and it says, you know, some of them believed, but, uh, but others said, no, thanks. Uh, right. And then others said, well, you know, maybe I'll consider that at another time. Uh, I mean, I, I remember talking with a number of our visiting scholars, and when they come in, I'll say to them, well, you know, when you're teaching at such and such a university and you're part of the science faculty, 
do you find that your colleagues are hostile to Christianity? And I remember Mike Strauss, uh, a cosmologist, a physicist, saying, no, most of them are ambivalent. Indifferent. They're indifferent. They're indifferent. Um, I think that's not all that different than Paul's experience. There were some people who said, you know, who's this, who's this babbler coming in here? Calling right. the Apostle Paul a babbler. Wow. Um, but from, a, from another perspective, I think to try to engage your question, Dave, I, I think any kind of message about the truth of Christianity has to involve an engagement with truth. But, but it also has to be a moral message. It has, it has to transform the person. Um, and therefore, it has to involve things like humility. It has to involve things like, I'm a, I'm a frail representative. Uh, and truth is found in God. And so um, I don't want to separate the intellectual argument from the moral life. But I don't think you you really can be successful with one without the other. Right. Good point. Okay, let's hit let's hit some then some criticisms because Joe, you and Dave have been raising the very issues that I write about in my book, A World of Difference. I mean, let's talk about really four criticisms of of postmodernism. What I would call uh, secular postmodernism. Um, I think I think that postmodernism really fails a fundamental worldview test, and that's the test of uh, coherence. Um, you know, postmodernism has been described as a rejection of meta narratives, of grand stories, systematic explanations of realities or worldviews. They reject those. But this bold rejection of all meta narrative actually becomes itself a meta narrative, mm -hmm. kind of falls back on itself. You know, you might even say that postmodernism is the claim that uh, it's it's the grand story that rejects all other grand stories. So I, I think that there's kind of a there's kind of an incoherence in that that component. Another element of incoherence, in my view, is postmodernism kind of declares that no one has access to the ultimate nature of reality. You know, you can't know ultimate reality. You, you can't have ultimate truth. Well, well, here's where I think the incoherence is. I think you got to know a lot about ultimate truth to know that access is denied. You know, when you, when you say nobody can know ultimate truth, you know so much about ultimate truth, you say nobody can know it. I think the reality is you want to be very cautious about what you say. Uh, I am very comfortable saying uh, I'm a flawed creature, I'm a limited creature, and I have to work hard at it. But it, it seems that these secular postmodern claims that nobody can know the truth um, they seem to be making a much bigger claim. They, they act like they're the arbiters. They're the ones who tell us whether we can walk in the gate of truth or we can't. So I, I at that point, am suspicious of you know, their perspective. Um, one more point here. You know, uh, we talk about perspectivalism. Uh, I was in a meeting not too many months ago where um, we were talking about, um, you know, the ideas of, of, of working in an organization and the person giving the talk mentioned perspectivalism. Well, perspectivalism in a philosophical context says that, you know, everybody has their own perspective. Um, every, everybody's view reflects the perspective of a particular person or a particular group. Um, but I would then say, uh, isn't that your perspective? I mean, mm. how, how, can you, how can you critique the idea of saying, well, everybody has their perspective. Well, whose perspective is that? There has to be an objective perspective, right? Um, or you know, sometimes we'll have meetings and I raise my hand and I say, 
I have a, I have a pesky philosophical question, and and it's usually a coherence question, right? If every if everybody has their own perspective, well, who represents the view that everybody has their own perspective? That sounds like an objective perspective. Where'd you get that? So you guys have been right to raise questions about, I think the lack of logical coherence to uh, many of these you know, uh, ideas. Now, now here's another one. This is gonna be my second criticism. I might put it in the form of a question. Does postmodernism promote workable consequences? Now, now again, they say that, well, you can't really have truth. So what you can best have is what works, what's useful, you know, incorporate power. Um, but the, the challenge here is, um, if that's the case, then how do you know that these, you know, the organizations that postmodernists criticize, if, if, uh, if all you can have is workable ideas, then, then why do you beat up on the Catholic Church? Why, why do you critique the American government? Um, it seems to me that if you ultimately reject truth and everything is just workable, you know, what kind of criticism can you really bring against the injustice of these kinds of things? So I think you guys were right to kind of raise these, uh, these, con these concerns. Now, here's a third one. And all of these kind of relate to what I call in, a, in my book, A World of Difference, truth uh, worldview claims. Uh, is it coherent? Uh, is it practical? Is it pragmatic? I think practical questions are, are legit. In fact, I think one reason why America is a world power is it takes pragmatism very seriously. By the way, the philosophers who developed the philosophy of pragmatism are almost exclusively Americans. Hmm. So does it work is a good question. But here's another, here's another, it's what I would call the existential question. Does the postmodern worldview address the internal needs of, of humanity? Um, well, uh, I have real question about that. Um, I think people are looking for their lives to make sense. I think people are looking for truth and goodness and beauty. I think people are, are searching for reasons to live and a reason to die, uh, that I can have confidence in my philosophy of life. And then when it comes to death, I can, I can face death because I believe that I have a, an approach to life that, that gives me reality. I don't think any of that is offered by postmodernism. I, if anything, I think postmodernism increases my existential anxiety uh, it, it seems that this skepticism, this subjectivism doesn't allow for people to kind of develop confidence uh, in their ideas. And then finally, number four, I talk about the competition test. Well, here I have kind of mixed ideas. Um, I used to think that postmodernism couldn't compete in the world of ideas. Now, after the last couple of years, I think well, it's competing not based upon reason and rationality, but it, it sure seems like a lot of people have adopted this and they're kind of swimming in it. And if I could say something about education, in my view, uh, in my view, the ideal, the ideal college, um, you know, Plato had a, he was the first one in the Western world to have a university. Um, the, he called it the academy. And, and when you talk to professors, you know, they will often use university and academy interchangeably. I think a really fine educational school at whatever level, but especially in terms of college, is I think you have to have ideas that are challenged. Um, it, it, it's not that you necessarily have to give up your view and adopt somebody else's view. I think if you get a degree from a really good college, 
you should be challenged about the really important things in life. Now, maybe you want to get a degree in engineering. Maybe you want to get a degree in medicine. Maybe you wanted to get a, a degree in political theory. Uh, not everybody has to be a philosopher, but I think to go through a really good educational institution, it should challenge the, the zeitgeist of the time. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the new ideas, which again, remember, they're not, they're not all that new. Uh, but, you know, I, ideas like whatever floats your boat, which essentially means whatever you find acceptable to your taste, you know, if, if you're heterosexual or homosexual or bisexual, well, whatever works for you, whatever satisfies you, I think that view should be critiqued. And, and when, it, when it comes to the idea of uh, you know, truth being relative, I think those ideas should be critiqued. Just as all of these alternative ideas should be critiqued. I think a good education, a student should come through that. And I think the university is probably gonna have to be an uncomfortable place. If you're a Christian, your Christianity will be challenged. If you're a Muslim, your Islamic ideas will be challenged. If you're a naturalist, your atheism will be challenged. But the way we have it now is secularists never have to defend. They never have to doubt their doubts. And, and in our kind of modern world of relativism, you know, ideas that are alternative to a traditional society don't have to defend themselves. Um, if I were the if I were the president of a university, I, I'd let the I would let controversial ideas come in, and I would just let them know you have a controversial philosophy of life. Set it forth. Tell us why you think this is something we should embrace. But be ready. We're going to critique it. But it's but instead, I think we now live in a modern society in America, but in other parts of the Western world where people are not confronted with ideas that challenge them. In fact, there we need these safe spaces. Um, in my view, we need to go back to Plato's Academy and 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 challenge it. So, I'm hoping, guys, that this discussion will lead to greater thought about, uh, about philosophy, about science, uh, about culture. Um, you know, you, you're exactly right, Dave. Uh, philosophy sometimes seems like it's here, there, and everywhere, and it never kind of comes to a, an ultimate answer but yet realize that this postmodern spirit, if you will, if you don't want to call it a worldview, call it a spirit or a zeitgeist, boy, it's, uh, it's left a dent on our society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Great stuff. Thank you again, Ken. I feel like I've been uh, sitting in a, in a classroom and I haven't paid the fee, by the way. No, no uh, tuition for, for this class. And it's been very helpful. Sometimes Dave will buy my uh, sandwich or my there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I hope our listeners find it helpful as well and pass along the, uh, the link and become regular listeners. We sure appreciate it. Uh, here are a few comments that have come in. Uh, people who have been reading your books, Ken, and there's been no, no shortage of, of these kinds of compliments. Here's another one here. Let me find one. Uh, yes. Ken, A World of Difference is one of my favorite books. I highly recommend it. Miguel Benitez, Instructor of Humanities, State College of Florida. So we're glad to hear from somebody teaching at a university. So thank you for that one. Uh, here's another one. Your work, God Among Sages, has been a key part of my journey in fully coming to Jesus Christ as my Savior and escaping the influences of Eastern conflicting ideas, Nicholas Medina. Wow, well, that's that's why we're doing all this, right, Ken? Yep. <laughs> Thank you for that, Nicholas. And finally, one more, and Ken, uh, you have to assure everybody you did not send out a $20 bill or a check to get this one, but here it is. 
Kenneth Samples is the most gifted Christian thinker I have ever heard or read. I have learned more about God from him than all the sermons I have ever heard. Lee Carroll. Uh, now, Dave, you're going to have to beat me up at lunch to get over. <laughs> Keep me humble. That's there right. you go. Yeah. Well, they're all taken in stride and gratefully received. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's humbling to hear those, I'm sure, Ken, from where you're sitting, but uh, all that attests to the effect that you have. And you are a very good communicator, and we, Dave and I sure uh, attest to that and appreciate it as well. So thank you uh, for sending those in. Keep them coming. You can reach Ken via his uh, Twitter handle, uh, which many of you uh, know, but if you don't, it's at RTB underscore K samples. Ken is all, always on Facebook, putting thoughts out there and book recommendations. So many of you have found him there and have uh, sent your comments that way. And uh, if you don't know, Ken writes a blog each uh, every other week, Reflections by Ken wordpress.com where he invites your comments and so there there are at least three ways uh, to reach him there so thank you for doing that be sure you subscribe to straight thinking on apple podcast podbean and spotify and that way you won't miss any of these episodes for ken samples and dave rogstad this is joe aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory but truth thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.